This is Leave Your Mark. I'm Vince Cortez, and today's guest is Ava Kaufman. Ava was born in Brooklyn, New York. She has attended New York University and received a BS in dance therapy and a BA in theater arts. She's a classically trained dancer and has performed around the world. She ran a successful company called Blue Skies with her then husband, but soon her world came crashing down. She drops dead in her home in 2009 and Ava spends two months in a coma during this time when she's given a heart transplant. And I can't imagine it being any more dramatic than that, Ava, because that's like from the mountaintop all the way down. So thank you for being our guest here today. So I'm, I'm excited to share your story with our guest. Well, thank you so much for having me. And it can be more dramatic than that because I was in the middle of a divorce and I have a daughter who then was 11. So it was a lot. Hi there and welcome. Now it's time for America's favorite podcast. Leave your mark with your host, Vince Cortez. If it's fly, loose fit it. It's Cortez. If freezing shop is in it. It's Cortez. Leave Your Mark is about inspiring the world, one guess at a time. Pass the word from Brooklyn to Pittsburgh, from urban to suburb, it's Cortez, you heard? And here is our host, Vince Cortez. So let's go back here to the beginning. You had humble beginnings. I said Brook, or uh, the Brooke, Bronx, I was, New York, is where you were from, right? Not right. I was, I was born in the Bronx and raised in Westchester. Okay. Now your parents, Shirley, and your dad, Jack, uh, were both very ambitious people. Your mother uh, was a homemaker and then a school teacher? Yes. Well, first she was a chemist. And oh, then wow. she was a chemist. And then she married my dad and became a homemaker and had three children. And when my brother, who I'm 10 years older than Barry, was 10, my mom went back to school and became a teacher. And she did that until she retired. She loved teaching. And your dad was in the hardware industry? He was in the hardware business. He had a series of hardware stores, yes, called Babin's Hardware. And you had a brother, Barry? I have a brother, Barry, and um, a sister, Mona, who passed away a few years ago. Okay. And now you sound like a, a middle-class family and in a traditional area. And what was life like growing up with a brother and sister, your mom and dad? We were a very loving family, very family oriented, you know, with uncles and aunts and cousins. And we, um, you know, spent all the holidays together. And, you know, my, I had one of my grand, my grandmother, my father's parents had a farm up in Stanfordville, New York, and we would go up there and I would spend summers there. And um, it was beautiful apple orchards and, you know, cows and pigs they had a pig farm really for a while okay. and my well, grandmother had beautiful gardens and um that was lovely it was you know very very family oriented lots of love and support a lot of heartwarming stuff yeah now you told me that at a very young age 10 years old what is that the third or fourth grade i guess you took a huge interest in dancing so Share with me when this all struck. I started dancing when I was three and continued on even now at 72. Um, I love to dance and it was um, my, my mother brought my sister and I into it because I think it's something that she had always wanted to do, not realizing that 
you know, I would become addicted and it would become my passion and, you know, take me on a different path than the way I was being brought up. So now at 10 years old, so you go all through high school and then you wind up at New York University and you're a dance major. Right. From the time I was 10 until I was about 16, I would go into Manhattan every day after school. And um, I took I studied at the Metropolitan Opera House with Margaret Kresk and Anthony Tudor. So I'm classically trained. But when I didn't have great feet, so um, ballet wasn't really what, what, what my destiny was. And so I got into jazz and contemporary and, um, you know, had a pretty nice career. Upon graduating from New York University, then uh, you, you go on tour right away because you, you share with me you're in Gloria Gaynor's uh, a tour, you were in West Side Tours, uh, Donna Summers. Right. Uh, or some of the people that you yeah you can even go to you can even go to Gloria Gaynor Helsinki 1976 and I'm in two of the numbers there because when I was a dancer way back then we didn't have videos or MTV or any of that stuff so somehow someone recorded that and it's on YouTube oh that's very cool that's very cool I'm sure you appreciate that get yes. to see all the old moves yep now you also were a businesswoman and you were working with Capizio Dancewear. Share with me what happened there. Well, when I graduated from NYU, I had to make a living. So I got a job at Capizio um, as a sales girl and I ended up managing the store and I changed the dancewear industry. I created stirrup tights and stirrup leg warmers and I found this new fabric called Milliskin, which you know, kind of changed the entire dancewear industry, but I wanted to dance, you know, so I was auditioning. I got a job with Gloria and I quit my job and went on tour. So now you're on tour for how long? So you go basically a career. Yeah, no, yes, definitely a career. Um, with Gloria, I think we were, I worked with Gloria for two and a half years, maybe, you know, it was a long time ago. I mean, um, Donna Summer is legendary. I brought her up when you said it last time. I mean, she was like the modern day Beyonce back in the day. You were working with the best of the best. Yes, I, I was. And I took class in New York always. And I worked with Fred Benjamin's dance company and Ron Farella and a lot of people. And then I followed a guy to L.A. We broke up and I met my then husband, Michael, and he had this small delivery company and we turned into a um, multi-million dollar business, which we sold later on. And then I died. <laughs> <laughs> now, this is kind of like, so you're at the age of 58 when this happens or how old would? I was 58 when, when it started with a rash. So and then I, you said, no, I, I can't pronounce that word. It was synormia autoimmune disease? Did I say that I, correctly? I had, I had um, a rare autoimmune disease called dermatitis. Okay. And it shows itself as a rash. So it started with a rash. And I went to the dermatologist and I was told that I had psoriasis. And for three months, I kept going back and forth. And I had this very pronounced rash on my thins and my eyelids and my back very very itchy my nail beds turned black and she just kept telling me I had psoriasis and then I was I had finally 
went to see my internist who looked at my hands and said, where's your blood work? And I said, I don't have any blood work. And she, so she did blood work and um, called me two days later and said, your muscle enzymes are extremely elevated. I'm going to send you to a rheumatologist. So she sent me to a rheumatologist and um, she said to me, you know, I can see you're starting to get puffy and put on weight. And by the look of the rash, you have some kind of myositis. So let's do um, a muscle biopsy. And I was on my way to get a muscle biopsy when I fell unconscious, was rushed to the hospital and put on life support. And the only thing that would save me uh, would be a heart transplant because the disease destroys muscles and your heart is a muscle and it advanced very quickly over a period of three months where I went from taking dance class every day to needing a walker. I share a similar story of watching my body decline and not know what it was. So could you share with me as you were going through and being a dancer, you're used to being very comfortable with your physicality, you know, your strength, you know, your athleticism, your movement. Um, what goes through your mind when you don't know exactly what's wrong with you, but you know, you're not the same person you were before? Um, well, I knew there was something wrong. Obviously, it never occurred to me that I was dying. Um, except the last the like the week before I was rushed to the hospital, I, I just I just I just knew that there was something going on. And it was, it's really hard to explain it because I still had a child and my husband had been away and come back and we had decided that we were going to have a friendly divorce. It didn't turn out that way because I died and my family got involved. But um, so, and I had started to put on some weight and I was very weak. So I, th I would say that there, were there was probably a short period of time in there where I thought the possibility that I might be dying, but I didn't really have enough time to deal with anything because it just did happen so quick. Like I was going to get this muscle biopsy and I figured, okay, this will tell them what's wrong with me, but I never got to get the muscle biopsy because I just dropped dead in my house. So you had, your mind was pretty much going all over the place. So how would you measure your stress level at that point with not really being able to think about yourself at that point? Well, my stress level was very, very high um, when, when this whole thing first started. So, you know, I have my own theory about stress causing illness. Um, you know, I was, like I said, in the middle of a divorce and um, my husband and I had a warehouse that we had sold and my uncle had helped us set it up and he took the money. So we, we were just almost broke and my uncle stole $1.4 million from us. Oh and so I was trying to get my family to get behind me. You know, my brother knew that the money was mine. We had paid the building off. And um, anyway, it was a horrible, horrible horrible, horrible situation. So the and stress so was as high as it could possibly get. The stress was as high as it could get because, I, you know, like I said, we had sold our business. Um, I had, I was starting another business, a teen obesity thing. And I, I just felt like I was losing control of everything. It was caving in. Yeah, so 
giving in. Now, I and again, I me here it. now. This the part of the story here. So you die in the doorway, and the next time you have consciousness again, you're told you have somebody else. You had a heart transplant. Correct. So, I mean, how do you process that? Well, you don't really process it because I was woken up after the transplant and after the surgery and told that I received a new heart. And then I was put into an induced coma for two months. So I didn't really process very oh, wow. much. So no, you went unconscious right so, back away. Now, how long were you induced in the coma for? How did I, was, you like I was in the coma for two months. And as I was coming out of it, I realized that I couldn't move or speak. And there was a light in front of me. It was very bright and lots of colors. And I just wanted to go towards the light. I realized I was aware of my situation. I knew that I couldn't move and then I couldn't speak. I mean, I couldn't even move a little finger. I couldn't move anything. Wow. I couldn't move my head, nothing. So I just wanted to die. And Were so- you in pain and even though you couldn't move? I, I don't remember being I don't remember. Um, I was so drugged, but- I, I was clear enough in my mind to know that I wanted to leave. And I thank God for my incredible life. And I was ready to just let go and follow the light. And then I smelled my daughter Jade's dirty hair. She was 11 and she rode horses and her hair smelled like the barn where she rode horses. And we would fight all the time about her riding her hair. I mean, I had a really big life and then everything caved in because of my uncle and, um, and him not giving my husband and I what was rightfully ours. It's amazing so, that you came back to, uh, to, you knew you were conscious again, really, when you smelled your daughter's right. hair. That's a really instinctive kind and of- I, And I knew then at that moment that I couldn't leave her, that if I left her, it would be the end of her. And so, um, you know, she didn't have a great relationship with my husband. I knew that he couldn't raise her. My sister and brother lived on the East Coast and I was a very different kind of parent than they are, though they're wonderful parents were just different. So Jade was used to a different kind of upbringing and there was no way that I could leave her. So I made a deal with God that if he let me come being if he let me come back to being Jade's mother again, I would spend the rest of my life giving back. Now, you, you've done that because we're a number of years later, and I want to talk about some of the things that you're currently doing with this experience. You basically have a whole new lease on life. So um, share with me about Ava's heart and how you're shedding light on the donor community. The thing is, um, after... I left, I left the hospital in four months in a wheelchair, my money embezzled by business partners and newly divorced and almost broke, but I had my life and my child and the promise I made to God. So I started volunteering at my transplant center and it was there that I learned of some of the inequities that um, are in the world of transplant. For example, if you can't afford post-transplant housing for three months at least near your transplant center, you can't get put on the transplant list. So mm. let's say you live in um, Bakersfield and you need to come down to LA for a transplant. You have to be able to afford to stay here. And UCLA and Cedars are two of the best transplant centers in the world. And we have Keck also. And people come from all over the United States 
to California for their life-saving transplant because we have treatments and mechanical devices and therapies that aren't offered in most other places. So, and then the state of Nevada doesn't have any transplant centers. They only do kidney transplants. So people come from all over here. And the thing about post-transplant housing is even though it's a requirement, um, it's not covered by insurance and most um, places don't provide it. There are some places that do have, you know, setups for that, you know, kind of like a Ronald McDonald house for transplant. But in LA where we do more transplants than any other centers in the world, um, we don't have any. And so mm -hmm. it was, you know, there that I met families who got turned away because they couldn't afford it. I met patients whose family members were sleeping in their cars in the hospital parking garages for months because they couldn't afford temporary housing in Los Angeles. And so um, it was then that I realized, okay, this is what I'm going to do. So without knowing anything about the nonprofit world, I started a nonprofit called Davis Heart, and we now provide the mandated pre and post-op transplant housing for patients and one caregiver. Uh, we can only help five families at a time. We have two homes and I'm trying to get more. And post-transplant housing is life-saving. Without a doubt, this is, this is just enormous uh, thing that you're doing here. I haven't been in a situation like that myself after my recovery. Um, it is a big deal because the hospitals want to get you out as fast as possible. I mean, you're, you just have a life saving operation well, of an organ it's, transplant. It's, it's not a matter. It's not a matter of them wanting to get you out. It's a matter of that. You have so much, it's like you're an outpatient. You know, you're, if you're a heart transplant recipient, you're having two or three biopsies a week, you're doing blood work, same thing with lungs and liver. So you're back and forth to the hospital constantly. Oh yeah, no, you need to go. The, so there's like, no way that you, you know, if you live in Las Vegas, you're going to drive back and forth. No, it's not happening. You know, I mean, we've helped, we have a family staying with us right now from Oklahoma. If you have a story to share, tell us. How are you going to leave your mark? Contact us. Leave your mark with our host, Vince Cortez. Be our guest. Now, how long have you been doing Ava's Heart for? I got my 501c3 in 2011. We really didn't get going until 2012. And, and when we first started, we just helped people with gas cards. I mean, we had no money. And then we um, fortunately had a wonderful relationship with Change a Life Foundation. And we were able to get 10 to 12 grants a year for $7,500 to help each different transplant patient. And as I learned more and I grew, we started doing events and we started raising money and um, Change a Life closed their doors. And One Legacy, the Oregon Procurement Agency here in Southern California stepped up and we became a community partner with them. And um, you know, we just, I'm still, you know, I feel like I'm still always starting at the beginning because money, raising money, you know, when, you, when you're not schooled in fundraising is, is quite challenging. Yes, that can be. That's very difficult. This is amazing what you've done here. You've made some serious tracks, but in this meantime, uh, you've been recognized on CNN. Yes, I was. Uh, you're on ABC News. 
Uh, you're a TED Talk speaker. Yes. That's where I saw you. And you also have written a book called Shark Heart. Right. Okay. What's going on with that? Well, um, I wrote the book basically with my friend, Tina Hill, KB Hill. And Tina came to visit me every single day in the hospital. She's a dear friend. And um, she came to see me twice a day, every day. And she was a dancer as well. And we just have this kind of weird connection where what really happened was a two, about two years after this whole thing, um, Tina wrote a one page monologue on how she thought I felt when I was coming out of my coma. And it was so profound when I read it because it was exactly how I felt. And so I said to her, um, you know, we talked about it for a long time. And finally, two years ago, we decided to sit down and write a book. And it's called Shark Heart, which um, Tina came up with the name. But when I was in a coma, I dreamt or hallucinated, whatever you want to call it, that I was underwater and that I was, I was in a boat and I got my transplant on a boat and I received the heart of a shark. And so Tina started, you know, investigating and and studying about what a shark heart really is and came to the conclusion that that's what I have. I mean, I'm 13 and a half years out from transplant. I haven't been sick one day. I'm 72 years old. You know, I run around like a maniac and have more energy than anybody I know. Um, and I'm making changes in the world. And so she said, let's call the book Shark Heart. And I said to her, I don't want the book just to want to be about me. I want it to be my story, obviously, but I want it to be other people's stories. I want it to be about our community, about transplant patients and donor families and people in the medical profession and the medical miracle workers. And so, um, that's what we did. And Shark Heart is now for sale on Amazon. We'll be doing a big promo and everything shortly. And we're working on a podcast of that, the same name. Shark Heart. Shark Heart. This is amazing. Well, I think you are like a wheel in motion. Uh, you have a big goal ahead of you, but you've made some serious tracks in the past. You said 12 years or 13 years? 13 and, 13 and a half. half. That is an incredible blessing. And I want to thank you for sharing your story with us. Uh, but oh, thank I, you I, so much for having me on. I do have to ask you, though, how would you like to leave your mark? I think I'm leaving my mark. I think Ava's heart is my mark. I'm not done with it yet. Um, I'd like it to be a national organization. I believe this country needs a national organization to assist the faces of transplant. But I'm in the process of leaving my mark. That is awesome. A work in progress, as we all are. That's fantastic. This is this was great. I really appreciate you coming by. I, I, I do want to share with the audience, though, the forward in your book, because I really thought that it, it was appropriate. It says, for my donor, though you have chosen to remain nameless, to me, your name is strength. Thank you for my life. Together, we live on. Yeah, without the donor, there's no story. Souls go to heaven, organs don't. Okay, Ava. We're gonna would you share with me um where your social media links and, and websites um, and where we can access your book and this kind of sure. stuff? Please? Um my website is Ava's Heart, A-V-A-S-H-E-A-R-T dot org. 
Avis Hart and Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, all just Avis Hart. Nice. Easy to remember. The book, the book is for sale on um, Amazon. It's we have an ebook, we have a paperback, and we have a hard copy. And my TED Talk is on YouTube and it's under what I've learned since my heart transplant. Perfect. Okay, Ava. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much Thanks for, for coming me. by. Bye. Thanks for listening to Leave Your Mark today. Tune into our next episode of Leave Your Mark with Vince Cortez. Be blessed. You just left your mark. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Listen to more episodes on demand. Just click Leave Your Mark with Vince Cortez.